Clarence! Help me, Clarence! Get me back! Get me back! I don't care what happens to me! Get me back to my wife and kids! Help me, Clarence, please! Please! I want to live again! I want to live again! I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. During the last few days, I've visited a great many American cities. I've visited New York and Minneapolis, and Chicago and Atlanta and Columbia, South Carolina and various cities. And I've watched the crowds as they've come and gone in the department stores and in the five and 10 stores. And as they've been buying and giving of presents. And somehow I felt that Christmas was different this year. I didn't see the same old merrymaking and the same old thrills and joys that I've seen in other times. Oh, some laughs and some kidding and some joking, but there seems to be a new tenseness this year. There seems to be almost a shadow across everyone's face. Fear and bewilderment and uncertainty and an instability in society. Everyone is seeming to say to themselves, I wonder if this is the last Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Welcome to Speak All Evil, the podcast you were warned about. I'm Trent, here with Kevin, Kat, and Dave. Hey, guys, how's it going? Great, how are you? Merry Christmas! We've Good made party, it. guys. Uh, Great Christmas party. We've made it to the final episode of 2020. I kind of can't believe it. Uh, I gotta be honest, I thought that one of you three would have quit by now. <laughs> Me too. I really no didn't comment. expect. Yeah, I really didn't expect to be here uh, at the end of December, ringing in a new year with the podcast um, personnel fully intact. So, hats off to everybody for uh, tolerating this uh, nonsense. Well, I, I almost didn't come to the Christmas party when I heard that the mistletoe is canceled in 2020. Uh, I've already uh, told everyone that there aren't going to be any Christmas bonuses this year, which is uh, a little bit of a disappointment. I know that times are tight. Uh, if you think that anyone involved here deserves a Christmas bonus, you could always go over to, to patreon.com forward slash speak all evil and help us out. Uh, there are kids in the mix. There, you'd be doing a good deed if you wanted to sign up and uh, and help us reap some kind of reward beyond the intrinsic um, that we uh, do yield from this. Um, I guess we'll start right off with my pick for this week that I have been regretting, um, actually. And <laughs> I, I almost changed my pick at the last minute, but I felt uh -huh. like that would be more annoying than just admitting that maybe I didn't do the best pick. You'd be I right. Went with, that's, that's correct. Yeah, I decided to just own it. Um, I really liked Black Christmas 2019 at the theater. We've discussed that the theater is my happy place and where I'm at my most generous and most willing to, to give a pass and just try to be in that moment because I like that moment so much. I really enjoyed Black Christmas 2019 the first time. This is uh, directed by uh, Sophia Tackle. 
uh, and co-written by uh, she and April Wolf. This is a Blumhouse production, PG-13, not well received by the general public. And at the time when I saw this movie, I didn't understand why after I saw it, I looked at the reception and um, people didn't like it. And I didn't really understand why. So I charged into this week's episode thinking, I'm really going to show these guys a good modern contemporary uh, Christmas horror movie. Um, But then watching it a second time, I understood why people didn't seem to uh, like this movie very much. I think we've established the general feeling about the movie. Kevin, uh, I think you saw this before from my recommendation. I did, yeah. I I actually think you tried to get me to go. This is yet another attempt of you to try to get me to come out and be a good friend and see a movie in the theaters, and I just like blew you off. So I'll admit that up front. So here's the thing. Let, let's set the movie up a little bit. You've got all of the prerequisites for a quote-unquote black Christmas movie. You have a sorority, Christmas time, and people dying. The biggest question I have for this movie is why did they feel the need to call it Black Christmas? Why mm. couldn't they have... They, it's barely a black Christmas movie. I feel like this could have potentially worked if they just left out all of this baggage where you're already going to be comparing this movie to the 1974 original to the 2006 terrible remake that I actually think might be better than this. Somebody come after me for that. Wow. Hot takes. This it's really, really poorly done. Uh, It's, it's fairly boring. You know, I had an opportunity to go and watch it again before we did the episode tonight and it has a pretty decent opening scene, but then like I'm looking at the clock and I'm like, we're like 40 minutes deep into this and absolutely nothing has happened. Um, good things about it, because there are good things. Imogen Poots is an amazing thing about this movie. I love her. We know her from 28 Weeks Later, Green Room, which is a really great horror movie. You have a, a nice diverse cast in the Sorority Sisters. I appreciated that. You have what what I know Dave's going to love this. You have a bunch of stock Ken doll, fresh out of the package frat boys that are just cookie cutter, boring ass douchebags. And you, you mean you have some OK, you know, some OK violence for a PG-13 movie. But you will get into this. I don't know why they had to call it Black Christmas. And I also... Treading on thin ice here. I don't know why they had to clobber me over the head for 90 minutes with social commentary, feeling as though social commentary can take the place of plot and character Mm. development. (laughs) Ooh, you cut real deep. Cut real deep just now. Um, In terms of remakes, I think that this film does exactly what it had set out to do. It takes the general general is a very large general plot line like of the black christmas the og and it then it it runs in an absolutely different direction with it um it takes the misogynistic tones of the first one and then amps it up to 11 uh this is a sorority filled with woke feminists and they're taking a hard stance on rape culture date rape and the patriarchy which of course i appreciate Uh, The choice of changing the random attic psycho to an underground MRA cult who are trying to put women back in their place 
I would say definitely makes sense for 2019 if you're going to, you know, try to revamp the uh, the old slasher thing. Um, it's a bit much, I would say. It definitely, I was like, uh, I think I'd like to see some crazy guy in an attic, actually, because I don't see that every day. <laughs> I got to deal with misogyny on an everyday basis, but I don't have to deal with stabby guys every night. So maybe that's a little bit more scary for me. Um, overall... Overall, I was a fan. Uh, I feel like it, it had a lot of jokes for my demographic in that I'm a women in gender studies minor from uh, college. So I I liked the yucks. I liked the diva cup joke. I thought that was very funny. Uh, but I did like how they brought the rape culture to the forefront of the film. Did it need to be mentioned every you know two minutes? No, but I liked that that was you know trying to be a major plot line. I think I just wanted more gore. I wanted it to be rated R. I wanted to see people get hooks in the face, like the <laughs> OG, you know? I just wanted to see, like, more blood. I will say the opening kill scene is the best scene in the movie. It's great. And I love that it's scene. It's like, yeah. if the rest of the movie had been like that, a thousand chef kisses, but it was okay. <laughs> wow. I, well, I, I totally agree with you, Kevin, about the title which I hadn't really thought about before because when you put it on par with a classic and, uh, you know, a remake, it kind of, like, makes me nervous. <laughs> but if it was, if I put it on par with, like, Happy Death Day, it's not that bad. Right. It's, like, sure. it's a pretty good horror movie. But, you know, they, they gave themselves gigantic shoes to fill. Um, but sometimes the... The classic versions like aren't as scary because the like the differences in technology, like people not being able to get to a landline isn't going to have the same effect when we all have cell phones. So I like that they updated uh, this story like using technology of cell phones, and I always like uh, when remakes do that. And it, it also kind of reminded me of the setting of uh, the movie Raw, where there's this super toxic masculinity that's like amplified by uh the little social ecosystem of college and how they kind of all you know run themselves and have their own rules it's a decent movie yeah i'm i'm not super precious about a remake of this kind black christmas the og is a great movie um and it did a bunch of things i think for the first time i think black christmas uh, 74 was the first movie to ever do the calls are coming from inside the house. And it was so creepy. Yeah. That I, guy I, I, was, like, scary. Yeah, so you, you have a lot of expectations when you title the movie like that. And I would agree that this there's no reason why this had to be called Black Christmas. It could have just been something else. Um, it does hit you over the head. It's There's no subtlety whatsoever. It's very much a social message movie. But I kind of... You know, I, I think as, as obvious as the movie is and as ham-fisted as it can be in delivering its message, I do think that there are some subtleties to it that get overlooked. I think that the movie does lampoon the very message that it's sending at times. I think it's a little bit more subversive than maybe it gets credit for. I think that it's not just the frat boys who are portrayed as cookie-cutter stereotype um, versions of human beings, but I think that even you know the social activists in the in the movie are portrayed as 
kind of stereotypical. And, and that's part of a horror, that's part of genre film. Lots of slashers trade in broad stereotypes. Um, and so that's not new. I think it's new, the angle um, that this one takes. And I appreciated the fact that uh, Riley is our main character. She's a student at Hawthorne College. All we really know about Hawthorne College is that it was named after Calvin Hawthorne, who uh, in the story is a kind of uh, legendary historic figure who owned slaves and was uh, an open misogynist. And his bust has recently been removed from the campus. This is a campus in, in tumult, in very relevant tumult in, uh, in today's, uh, today's country. Um, there is a petition being circulated to fire a professor for his refusal to teach literature by anyone except for straight white males. Um, and that's all run by this uh, character, Chris. She's a member of the same sorority as Riley. And there are tensions that develop even between Riley and Chris that I think are interesting and that do illustrate a little bit more complexity than you might think at first blush. You know, Riley is a, a victim of sexual assault by one of the members of this fraternity on campus. Chris is the activist uh, who is behind a lot of the progressive uh, movements that have been happening, like the removal of the bust, and they do a song at the fraternity's uh, annual Christmas talent show that calls out the fraternity for rape culture. Um, I think that there are some pretty... Um, real-life instances of disagreement among people who generally broadly agree with each other, but these kind of issues can sort of drag like-minded people down into infighting, and I, I thought that was a, an interesting part of the movie. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm still going to go back to, you know, why, why it had to be called Black Christmas, and. I found a quote from the director, Trent. You're going to keep calling her Sophia Tackle. I'm going to call her Sophia Tackle. Tackle, sure. Because, you know, as Dave's pointed out, I like to make words fancier than they probably really are. But I found a quote from her where she said, I wanted to make a movie where instead of feeling objectified or watched from a distance, the audience felt seen. I don't know what that means. And maybe I'm just being stupid. But... You know, the movie, she was hell-bent on having this be PG-13. And, and there's there's something to be respected here where she wanted to make it PG-13 on purpose in case young women who were interested in horror and opening up discussions on sexual assault wanted to go see this. So she used the rating, you know, trying not to tone down the violence. Allegedly, she was prepared to go full-rated R, but she was really on a mission to have this be PG-13 to widen up the audience for young women. I appreciate that, and I, I certainly respect that. But the the things that she did to to justify the PG thirteen rating, I think, ended up fucking the movie up even more. You know, we we're talking about the social commentary. You can't show blood, red blood, in a PG thirteen movie. You can't show forceful strikes. You can slip one fuck into a PG-13 movie these days, which they, they managed to do in this movie. But then, like, taking it a little bit further and having, like, the frat boys bleed out this black goo and equating that to toxic masculinity, uh, it just there was just some stuff that was, like, 
it made it, yeah, it, it took away from from a statement this movie could have made, I think. I, I just, I don't know. I don't know. The, the more I watch this movie, the more I think about it. I'm really disappointed. Toxic masculinity manifests itself as white goo. And this movie should have been called Fright Frat. Fright Frat? Yeah, Fright Frat. Instead of Black Christmas. If it was called Fright Frat, I would have been like, oh, would have been like, cool, yes, check it out. Queen. Straight to, sh- straight to shutter. I love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, this is, this is a Blumhouse cash-in. It didn't need to be called Black Christmas. It has almost nothing to do with the original um, Black Christmas or the 2006 remake that I really didn't like at all. I think this is better than that, to be honest. But uh, I should point out, this is on HBO Max right now. So if you got the HBO subscription, you can dial this up without a rental. We talked a little bit about the scene where not all men comes uh, to the front of this movie. I thought that it was the best scene of the movie. There was a scene where the protagonist, Riley the white liberal feminist who has been a victim of sexual assault, starts to get cold feet about drawing attention to her experience, and she takes out her anger on her sorority sister, Chris, who is the activist of the bunch and happens to be a woman of color. And there's, I thought, a very interesting dynamic where Riley is sort of like pulling her privilege card, where she's sort of saying, yes, this happened to me. Yes, I was a victim. No, I'm not happy about it. And yes, I want to shine a light on it, but not so much light that it inconveniences me in my daily life and it might impact the way I'm able to navigate these uh, patriarchal racist systems a little bit easier than you, Chris. And I don't appreciate you rabble-rousing. And uh, maybe I'd just like to kind of keep this a little bit quieter than you. And I think that that is a, uh, a common card. And I think that, you know, white liberals um, are very rightly called out on that. And Chris, of course, doesn't respond well to it. And at that point, one of the boyfriends who has been a sympathetic sort of ally of, of of this sorority, he even rises up and he doesn't like the way either of them are talking about men. And he says, uh, oh, well, I, that's funny. I'm a man and I've been right with you guys every step of the way. I would appreciate it if you didn't just like constantly generalize about men and how much power they have and all the bad things they do because I have no power and I don't remember doing anything bad to anyone. And it's just this whole like circular firing squad on this, like, on these cultural identity issues that I thought was very relevant to uh, to today. Well, thank you for mansplaining that to us, Trent. I'm sure the director <laughs> no problem. is very validated by uh, your uh, noticing of the uh, poignant. Anytime. Here's what I think. I've heard the not all men argument before in real life, and I just, you know, want to say, absolutely. Do I think you guys are pieces of shit? No, I love you guys with all my heart. But there is that moment when if one of you were to, you know, not all men me, you'd be a different... <laughs> like, I understand that not all men. Hashtag not all men. But I think... Not all men kill people. Just it, me. It's just you. Uh, but I think the main thing is that we just have to acknowledge that while not all men rape women while they're under the influence of drugs and alcohol... A lot do. And so some responsibility has to be taken in acknowledging that. And then, I mean, that goes for 
other things. You know, I'm not here. I say men are trash, but I think it's fun. I'm just like making like trash jokes. I say I'm trash all the time. So I just think everyone is trash. But does that mean that some men aren't trash? You are uh, anti-man pro dick. Yes. I don't need the rest. (laughs) Just give me the, the little bits. Please and thank you. Merry Christmas. Well, I think that there is a time, uh, in my opinion, in my view, there is a time to just shut up and sit down and listen to other people. And you don't have to get defensive and try to speak up for yourself at every opportunity. But that's kind of what men are taught to do, uh, particularly white men and uh, white men from, say, the Northeast who have lived fairly sheltered lives and who haven't really encountered much of what other people might be talking about. Um, I think that that's part of, uh, you know, being uh, an ally is sometimes just shutting up. And that's what this guy can't do. And I think that it's understandable. Um, but it's I think it's a very human, uh, human moment in a movie that otherwise is like pretty, pretty heavy handed and really hits you over yeah. the head with everything. But I, I will say the reason that that's happening is because the high pitched noises that the weird underground MRA cult are like emitting are like making the testosterone or it's making like them like aggro. So it's the evil cult that's making him be like, not all men, women behind me. You know what I mean? Yeah, I felt like there is that spooky. All that stuff wasn't as necessary. I felt like there was a certain element to the end that it could have just been a slasher and it would have been fine. I liked I liked like the bad guys uh, masks and their costumes. And I liked that they had bow and arrows. Arrows are scary. Very scary. But. I just I didn't understand I, mean, I didn't understand the choice of weapons like is it because it's like the fucking archery team that is that this fraternity or some, something like that's why they come <laughs> rolling in with bow and arrows like yo we're the archery team we're gonna show you woman get get your shoes off and get in the kitchen make me a sandwich or I'm gonna shoot you with this arrow yeah I pictured that and like the rowing team. Maybe they could have had some oars. <laughs> there were there were oars. There were like the paddles that they used to like block the oh, doors right. at the end. Right, you're right. Good call. I, I thought that once the arrow attack started, though, I thought at that point, and this is right after the big circular firing squad argument uh, among the essentially the the core group of allies, they've all kind of fallen out, and right at that moment the bow and arrow attack from the evil fraternity starts. And I thought from that point on, I thought it was like really suspenseful. I thought they did the, um, the attack scene stuff very well. And, you know, I think that it's pretty effective just as a pure, um, slasher type movie after that point, but getting there is, uh, a a little bit, uh, a little bit rough. I'm curious. I would, I I would like, I would like to go into cats signal, that she was talking about. And I'm curious. So there's one male in in the movie that sort of rises above the Calvin Hawthorne signal or poison or whatever. What do you think that says about him? What, what is what is the movie trying to say about his character? Uh, that he doesn't need any more testosterone? Landon. I don't know, Kevin. What, I, do you I, think? I, I, what are you looking for here, Kevin? No, I have no idea. I'm just again. I think this movie <laughs> just hits you over the head with a bunch of shit, and you can pick it apart pretty easily. 
Yeah, but didn't it affect him? He, Wasn't yes, he did. like, didn't he turn? He did. I think that so, Landon um, is so kind didn't... of a shallow character, to be honest. And I think that I, I didn't really get the signal thing as much, I guess, with this. But I think that Landon is kind of shown to be a guy who wants to be a good guy in the eyes of the sorority sisters and certainly wants to be a good guy to Riley, who he's trying to uh, he's trying to romance her. He wants to get so it he's in. kind of. Yeah, like I, I, I thought yeah. he was kind of shown to be a little bit shallow in his like, you know, there's always some guy that's going to just agree with whatever, you know, a woman says that he's trying to bed, let's face it. Mm. And I thought that when, when push came to shove, you saw which side he ended up on. Now, you can call that a result of the, the malicious uh, signal that's being sent out from the fraternity. But I kind of took that as typical not all men. You know, when it comes down to it, you never really Taking know the where nice people guy are going to end up. And yeah, guys will say a lot of things to impress women, I guess is my point. This signal is probably just a, like a placebo, like so they would feel better about themselves. Oh, yeah, it's the signal made me do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, the signal made me act so macho. Yeah, exactly. So I like, yeah. I like the fact that uh, Sophia Tikal, I, I appreciate what she was going for, definitely would love to see this type of stuff be put out in movies more. And I found it incredibly interesting for Blumhouse because Blumhouse obviously has been churning out horror movies like very few studios have in the last however many years since Jason Blum graced us with his presence. This is the first Blumhouse movie directed by a woman. You can tell. Uh, I would like to point (laughs) out. Yeah, they're really like playing their woman card like full on. They, they had yeah, a I would like to point out that Blumhouse, um, Jason himself, just signed a deal with a like 16-year-old TikTok dude to give him a movie. So it took Blumhouse the same amount of time to hire a woman to direct and write a movie as it did for them to sign a 16-year-old TikTok bro. So, you know, the motivations, I think, are Great. go outside of the, the movie itself. The motivations and the questions, I think, go all the way up to Blumhouse, which I'm not really a fan of. And I think they're just, they're just trying to, like, ride yeah. whatever topical controversy they can. Does Jason Blumhouse really care about any of this stuff? Uh, no. no. I don't think so. This goes all the no. way to the top. <laughs> no, and you're right. This, this movie happened fast. This movie was announced and greenlit in in 2019. And then all of a sudden, like a trailer came out <laughs> mere months before. And it was like, oh, by the way, we're going to have it out by Friday the 13th in December of 2019. It, I mean, it's yeah, this I mean, was yeah. best a decision throwaway. for them, I guess, had they known what the next year would have in store. So Weinstein went and then Jeffrey Epstein went <laughs> and he was like, quick, we need to make a female movie. Yeah, that's yes. I feel like that's like. <laughs> oh, everyone you know what all men are evil everyone has an agenda and Blumhouse uh, <sighs> is no exception and we've talked in the past a little bit about the you know corporate co-opting of social justice movements and how shallow and obvious it is that these things happen because when corporations realize that they can make a bunch of money by being on the quote-unquote right side of any given social issue that's cropping up online or that people are finally, like, tired of uh, dealing with, 
then they just rush in there and do their stupid movies like this and they make their little commercials and they, they say they care about this and that issue and they do the right slogans and everybody just thinks that they're great uh, and maybe they are. But the only reason that this happens is because they know that it will make money and that is what drives the decision to back any of these movements is purely a profit-based motive, and that kind of like muddies the water a little bit when you're trying to figure out, you know, what's really being said here. A lot of the old stuff we watch uh, is socially conscious anyway. Exactly. Yeah, it's not like it's new, and it's not trying. Yeah, so horror yeah. movies have been doing this since the beginning. I mean, Night of the Living yeah. Dead, 1968. Where this has been, you know, social commentary has been a huge part of horror movies, but mm-hmm. now. We started yeah, wearing slicksters masks. slicksters like Jason Blum want to come in t- and make a bunch of money <laughs> acting like they're yeah. like activists or something. Yeah, it's like an example of a like film that was very successful and very, you know, feminist was like A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Like that, that did it. And that wasn't like shoving anything down exactly. anyone's throats. You know exactly. what I mean? Like it's yes. about subtlety. This most holy of holidays, Crimbus, Merry Chrysler, Happy Honda Days, was 1988's Scrooged, directed by Richard Donner. I don't really know what else he did, but Danny Elfman did the score, so you know it's going to be toit. Uh, this is a take. Elfman. This is Elfman. Oh, oh, it's a Christmas miracle. Oh, fuck yeah. Uh this is a take on the classic Charles Dickens tale, A Christmas Carol. It follows Frank Cross, played by Bill Murray, bless up, who is a young president of a television network whose cold ambition and curmudgeonly nature has driven away the love of his life and the rest of those dear to him. After firing one of his staff on Christmas Eve, he is visited by three ghosts, who give him a chance to reevaluate his actions and right the wrongs of his past. Wow, what a great story. Uh, I picked this one because Trent and I wanted to pick a Christmas Carol for one of our picks, but we were trying to decide which one. I thought this one was the most evil, quote-unquote, because mm. Bill Murray plays a you know, commercialistic uh, TV executive who wants people to die of fright from watching his uh, (laughs) network uh, commercials. And it just like kind of feeds into that like 80s uh, money commercialism, hot chicks, no fat ones kind of situation. Um, 
also this is my favorite Christmas movie in general and I always make people watch it on Christmas so I wanted to make you guys watch it and I wanted to hear about how much you love it and don't have anything negative to say at all uh I think it's a joy to watch Bill Murray you know steals the show that's what he's there for it's also got David Johansson from the New York Dolls so 10 out of 10 there and it's obviously not a horror film per se but I think it's a spooky comedy Christmas tale and I just think it's delightful. I think it's delightful too, Kat. Thank you. Thank you. The only part <laughs> that I would disagree with is David Johansson uh, not making a complete fool of himself and mockery of the New York punk scene. Mm. Uh, this is a this is a low point for David Johansson for me because <laughs> He's trying to go commercial, and he went straight Christmas. Uh, who's that? Santa Claus. He had kind of a, a marginal hit, but they were tr- they were trying to you know he was trying to sell out, and this was this is one of the weirdest sellouts of a <laughs> punk rock musician uh, was this vibe, this Buster Point Dexter character. Yeah. But uh, a Christmas Carol in general, pretty much any version of this. Um, maybe it, it's because I've lived a horrible life. I don't know why I would be scared of this, but <laughs> it's very scary to me. Um, and it's like a super old, you know, horror story. Um, like, uh, the, fr- maybe the, the second oldest, the first being the Bible, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, but this is like, uh, I actually found, uh, Scrooge to be. Uh, the message of it to be very not Christian. It was very like atheist instead of like, uh, well, God will hand them all uh, their their fate <laughs> instead of like that kind of thing. It's mm-hmm. like, no, I'm going to help somebody. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to leave it in the hands of, uh, you know, whatever's happening. I'm going to be compassionate. And uh, that whole vibe of Christmas, which I think is cool. And it goes against uh subtly christianity but uh commercialism and consumerism and advertising and i think it's a lot smarter uh this this movie's a little smarter than it seems uh on face value but yeah i, I mean bill murray's awesome and it and it has a similar tone uh the city vibe as like ghostbusters to me mm-hmm. I mean, um i just love it yeah, this was a tough one for me. This is where I do get a little bit precious about the remakes and the reinterpretations. A Christmas mm-hmm. Carol is my favorite Christmas story by far. I've seen every film adaptation of A Christmas Carol, including this one before now. I didn't like this mm-hmm. one because I'm just like, I get very purist about it. I think the it's text okay. is there. It doesn't need updates. It doesn't need any tricks. <laughs> it doesn't need Muppets. It doesn't need Patrick hey. Stewart. Uh, I think that the best version is with George C. Scott. And every Christmas day, I have a long-running tradition where I listen to A Christmas Carol as read by Jonathan Winters on NPR. Um, so that was my mindset going in. I tend to dismiss these types of adaptations, although I do think that they're all horror movies. A Christmas Carol is a horror story and all adaptations of A Christmas Carol for film are horror movies. That said, 
I went into this like really trying to embrace it and I enjoyed it. I thought this was like pretty good. Uh, I had a good time. I I let go of my, uh, you know, my uh, preconceived notions. I let go of my purity on this story and just enjoyed Bill Murray mugging the hell out of it for an hour and 40 minutes. I really Mm -hmm. enjoyed like how flat all of the like topical references fall. Like it's almost like, Dennis Miller was writing the script, like every topical <laughs> reference, like from Mary Lou Retton to Richard Pryor, like, oh, all the Norm stuff McDonald. that is referenced, yet yeah, none of them hold up. No <laughs> reference in this movie. Yeah. Like nobody would know unless you were like a Gen X guy or something like me, you wouldn't even know half of the shit that they're talking about. Uh, and I would point out quickly that Richard Donner, uh, the director of this, also did a little movie called The Omen, also did uh, oh. Superman 1978 and also did the goonies so this is uh you know this is not a nobody yeah and this is a rental on pretty much any platform and i i would recommend this for your christmas viewing i was nervous as trent was as trent was getting going on his take i was a little nervous that it was going to be hot 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 (laughs) (laughs) i thought he's going to be a real purist when he started talking about npr (laughs) like i only i read the original scripture from Charles Listen, Dixon. I get a li- hey. I, I get a little Dickens. white liberal. I get a northeastern white liberal Gen X Dickens. with a Christmas Carol, and I I fully admit that. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't even thought about this movie in a long time. So thank you, Cat. This is one that uh, I, I have a little brother, and he is seven years younger than me. So when he was growing up, he would do this thing, which I think a lot of kids do. He would latch onto a movie, and you would have to watch it not just every day, multiple <laughs> times per day. So it would be like, this movie ends, and we start it again. No. And he was the cutest, still is, just the sweetest, the sweetest dude. Scrooge was one of those movies. So the reason I haven't probably watched this movie in like 25 years or longer is I watched it like a thousand times, I'm sure, just to placate my younger brother. Love you, Billy. Merry Christmas. <laughs> this this movie is great. It, it's so unhinged. So this is Bill Murray coming back after taking a four-year acting hiatus because Ghostbusters stressed him out so much about how big it was. So Bill Murray did Ghostbusters, which we all love. It's one of the biggest movies of all time. And then he went the fuck away and was like, this is too much for me. He pulled an Eddie Vedder on his career. And then he came back and did Scrooge. Dave Chappelle. And it literally, like you said, Trent, it's Bill Murray for an hour and 40 minutes. There's barely a scene in this movie that does not have Bill Murray. He must have had to work his ass off for this movie. And it's it's great. I love, Trent, that you brought up like all so many Bill Murray references in this that would just pass you by that we can get into that you would really have to be a Bill Murray fan. But they literally just handed him the keys to the car and said, yeah, if you want to come out of hiatus after four years, you can do whatever the fuck you want. Like, this is like, you know, Kiss reuniting for the 27th time. Like, they're going to, any stadium's going to book them. And I, I love the fact that Richard Donner directed it. You know, Omen, Superman, The Goonies. But hey, Richard Donner also brought us the fucking Lethal Weapon series. So his Ooh. filmography is in question. I, I I can't say enough good things about this movie. I, I will say that that Buster Poindexter, totally remember that character, have always carried it. But Carol Kane in this movie, 
I have never forgotten Carol Kane playing this beautiful, fucked up ballerina that beats the shit out of Bill Murray every second that they're on scene together. I, I hold her dear to my heart. We just talked about Black Christmas. Carrie Elways was in that. He was in The Princess Bride. Carol Kane is in this movie. She's in The Princess Bride. There's just too many things happening to not make this movie magical. So don't fuck with me on Scrooge. That's amazing that you mentioned, first of all, Carol Kane, who is the ghost of Christmas present in this. She will oh, always be Simka, wife of Latka on Taxi to me. Andy <laughs> oh, Kaufman's, <laughs> Andy Kaufman's character on the show Taxi, she was his wife, and that's who she always is to me. So I was psyched to see her in this, and she's amazing. Definitely the best ghost. I can't believe... The ghost, I was going to say, I really loved Tom Waits as the ghost of Christmas past. <laughs> just, I thought it was just a guy who was trying to be Tom Waits. Oh. I did not know until right now that it was actually Buster Poindexter. Buster Point, hot, hot, well, hot. Yeah. Hey, guys, well, Carol, Carol Kane was in When a Stranger Calls, which we panned. Yes. yes. And Black Christmas and that both have the same, like, they're calling from inside the house mm-hmm. vibe. Oh, by the way, Trent, Trent, I did look it up. You are 100% correct. 1974's Black Christmas is stated to be the first time the calls are coming from within the house. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Oh, and and, and I should point out, too, that Buster Poindexter, what the hell, what what the fuck's his real name? Uh, David Johansson. I don't know. David Johansson. David Johansson, New York Dolls. Uh, That was supposed to be played by Sam Kinison. And Bill Murray was oh friends God. with David Johansson wow. and got Kinnison wow. ousted and him put in. So that's how we got this. This is role. the most eighties this yeah. is the most like eighties New York SNL circle you could actually you Trent, could ask for. Trent, I, I need I need to ask you. So we did a Patreon last night. You did a, a very spot on impression of Kristen Stewart from the movie Underwater. Do wow. you have you. a Bobcat Goldwing <laughs> impression Goldway. in you? I don't. You got no, it. I, I don't. Who, who can? He doesn't you need do it. it. He doesn't need it. But that was one of the small joys that I found in this movie <laughs> is that Bob Goldthwaite, who at this time was still being billed as Bobcat Goldthwaite, uh, has a pretty prominent role, one of the few prominent supporting roles in this movie and uh, does a great job. I love that guy. Yeah, he's great. Well, I'm glad everyone liked this movie because now you all get your Christmas presents and I'm not going to keep them from you accordingly. So, <laughs> Yeah, Kat has been threatening me personally. I haven't told you guys, but she's been like threatening to withhold my Christmas present if I, Listen, you know, if I, I someone the line on her. Someone in here her doesn't have things. the Christmas spirit. Okay, guys. So I might have said keep that up and you're not going to get your pr- Christmas present. So. So Trent, uh, so Trent, really, if if you yeah. want to, after you get your Christmas present, we can do a Patreon and you can shit all over Scrooge. Okay, I'll give you that time. I uh, no, I I liked it. I had a good time. Um, I really appreciated that Bill Murray's character as Scrooge, essentially, um, he drinks Stolian Tab through oh, the whole tab. movie. Oh He's my, always there's always less Stolian tab, tab going in. It's every time he makes a drink. There's less soda going into it, and I, I, I right love until it. the end. The last one is like is one yeah. drop of tab, and yeah, I kind of felt seen mm. by that. Uh, <laughs> I felt a little bit seen by the whole movie, to be honest. Oh. So I appreciated that. Well, this movie was well received by audiences. It was made for thirty two million. 
And I'm guessing like 26 of that went directly to Bill Murray just to get him out of retirement. It made $100 million, which in 1988 dollars is a lot of money. I don't have the uh, calculation. Feel free to Google that. But it was not well received by critics. This actually had a lot of really bad reviews when it came out. Roger Ebert himself, as he was still alive, gave this one star and gave it a very, very scathing review. He thought it was totally disjointed. And if you read about the making of this movie, you start to understand why. So this movie was written by two gentlemen, one of them uh, being, uh, his last name's O'Don, Michael O'Donohue, and then Mitch Glazer. And Michael O'Donohue was the first head writer of Saturday Night Live. Mitch Glazer actually uh, okay. would come back to work with Murray uh, on a 2015's A Very Murray Christmas. But when, when Donner got Murray on board, Murray basically said, I need to rewrite this script. So he and O'Donohue had a lot of problems working on the script together, and essentially Murray won. And Donner and Murray, for all intents and purposes, they hated each other. They have hilarious interviews that you can find where Donner would call Murray a genius, but then, quote, occasionally difficult. Bill Murray, who is way less tactful than Donner, obviously, and gives way less fucks, would say that Donner was just yelling and going for more action, and Murray would say, I think he was deaf. So there it wasn't a happy uh, production here. And O'Donohue claims that m- more good footage was left on the cutting room floor because Donner and Murray didn't understand the movie that he was trying to make, and he eventually completely disavowed this movie. I think for me, the biggest sin of this movie, the one thing that I cannot abide as much as I enjoyed it on uh, a number of different levels, the soundtrack hit, Put a Little Love in Your Heart by (laughs) Annie Lennox (laughs) and Al Green is one of the worst 80s hits of all time. I was horrified to learn that that was done for this movie, and you have to hear that song at the end. I thought it was like Aretha Franklin or something, but no, it's Annie and Al, uh, and it's very, very bad. It's so bad, and the the version they're all singing together at the end is even worse. Like the uh, phrasing is so bad. Oh. It's yeah, it's it's not a kind moment in eighty cinema history. No. You so so we're talking about the ending, and that's where that song comes up, Trent. So one of the best parts of this movie, I think, is the end rant by Bill Murray, where he just goes completely off the rails. You know, disrupts this live version of A Christmas Carol that his TV station is supposed to be doing, takes over the whole thing. You know, like you talked about, Dave has this big revelation of, I'm going to take my own destiny in my own hands. And you, everybody out there watching, you should too. Why are you guys watching TV on Christmas Eve? That whole thing, speaking of the clash that Murray and O'Donohue had, is O'Donohue had insisted that Murray stick to the script. And then when you think about making a movie, you have markers. So you have cameras and camera people that they're supposed to follow you where you're supposed to go. So Murray kept saying, yeah, sure. Yes, sure. When they actually filmed it, Murray improv the entire fucking thing, ran around like a maniac. And some people on set thought he was actually having a mental breakdown. When he was done with that whole sequence, the entire crew broke into applause. And O'Donohue is, is on record as saying, what was that? The Jim Jones hour? 
<laughs> so like I said, he, he, he eventually disavowed the film and said that his original script was funnier than what Bill Murray improved on screen. Sorry, O'Donohue. Go fuck yourself. That end rant is so fucking magical. And then when yeah. they're doing the song that you hate, Trent, and Bill Murray kind of comes over to the camera and starts getting as though you're in the theater watching it and he starts to get people to sing along, he improv that entire thing as well. They had no idea he was going to do that. I, I assume there was a fair amount of improv on Murray's part in this. It just kind of, you get that feel that he's, like you said, the keys to the kingdom. He's just, he's just doing whatever he wants. I, I liked his ad that he made in the beginning that he showed. <laughs> yeah. It reminded me of our ads. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it looks like one of our trailers. <laughs> yeah, I thought of you, Dave, with the uh, you'll love it <laughs> yeah. Y-U-L-E, you'll love it. I commented <laughs> on that when I watched that. it again. <laughs> I mean, Bill Murray is just like an interesting character whether you like or dislike his movies. I mean, I like most of them. And I think that it's very interesting to me that in 2020, if somebody had told you, you know, 30, 40 years ago, that Bill Murray of Stripes uh, and Meatballs would be like this, he's kind of like the Beastie Boys of like white uh, 80s comedy actors. You never would expect that in 2020 he would still be like a massive star and everybody would be like fawning over how cool he is because he is very cool. Uh, so there's a lot of interesting things about this movie that, like you said, Trent, just get passed by. When Bill Murray is walking through a bunch of street musicians and he just insults them, that band is actually comprised of Paul Schaefer, Miles Davis, yeah. <laughs> David Sanborn, and Larry Carlton. And, and they're in the right. movie for like three seconds. And he just walks yeah. through and insults them. And it's like four of the most accomplished musicians in the world. There's a ton of like 80s references that you have to explain. I mean, he references Reader's Digest. Yeah. I mean, like, I luckily got that was, them all. That Reader's Digest. Was, yeah. Yeah, that was in my parents' bathroom. I got them all because like, I, or my grandparents. Yeah, I watched a lot of I Love the 80s on VH1. So I got all the references, but only because of, of that. My favorite is when he wakes up in the sewer underneath the streets of New York. And he says, where are we? Trump Tower? Ooh, it's so topical. <laughs> yeah, great one. Great one. <laughs> I enjoyed this one uh, against all odds, Kat. So thanks I for uh, honestly am so happy right now because I thought I was just about to get shit on for like half an hour. So I didn't. No, this, yeah. this was the ghost Christmas. of Christmas past for me, and it was a good one, Kat. Thank you for making me remember a movie that I had. I had obviously blocked out because I watched it so many times with my younger brother. Uh, I do want to end with a, a, a nice piece of Christmas cheer referring to this movie, though. So this movie was actually being filmed during the Christmas season. And there's a legend that says that Paramount, the studio that put this out, did not want to stop filming on Christmas. And they told Donner, the director, make everybody work. And allegedly, Richard Donner fired everybody on Christmas Eve and let them go home for Christmas and then had everybody's agent on standby to rehire them the day after Christmas and continue filming. Crimbus magic. 